Hello there. This is the story of the Old Testament, walking through the Old Testament scriptures. This week we're in 2 Samuel 6 through 14, Psalms 10 through 14. This is week 33 for the week of August 13 through 19. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for reading through the scriptures. And uh, we're starting to hit some uh, really important stories in the life of David and in the life of God's people, things that continually point us to Jesus, to reveal him to us, and to comfort us as to who our God is. So we begin this week with 2 Samuel chapter 6. David has become king. David is now king of the whole people of Israel, not simply Judah. And uh, now he's, he's in Jerusalem, right? He wants to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. And um, he wants to uh, bring the, the token, the symbol of God's presence to the holy city now, of, of, to the city of Zion, to Jerusalem, so that the place of worship and the place of where the king lives are the same place. And so he does this. Um, he brings up the ark, and then we have this story that happens very quickly here in chapter 6 where we're at. The people are rejoicing. Everyone's having a great time. But we see here that God's people are not doing what God commanded. They are um, having music. They're dancing. They're just having so much fun, so much good, t- so much of a good time. Um, but then it says here in verse uh, 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because the ark Right, he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Yuza, and that place is called Perez Yuza to this day. So the people of God were not listening to the Lord because they were carrying the ark of God on an ark. That is not how he told them to do it. So we see here a principle again from the second commandment that God wants us to worship him as he tells us to. So we don't have the um, we don't have the um, the prerogative, the right to tell God how we will worship him. That's what they were doing. They were saying, well, we'll bring the ark of God, but we'll bring it the way we want to. And that's not actually the way they were supposed to do it, right? You only do what the Lord commands you to do because he's going to tell you the way he wants it done. And so we defer to him. We trust in him. We listen to his word. That's what the second commandment is all about. And so they broke that commandment. And we see this this throughout scripture that whenever we do something that God has not commanded us to do, even with the best of intentions, Yuza here had probably the best of intentions from one perspective. And yet this was a great sin that he committed. So this is from uh, an article that I want to read to you. It's called two Sa- from 2 Samuel 6 here. It's called You Can't Handle God. It's by a guy named Ken Jones. He opens up this way. In Rob Rayner's 1992 legal drama, A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise played a military attorney defending two Marines in a court-martial for murder. In the climactic scene, he grills the colonel, played by Jack Nicholson, who commands base. He tells his witness, I want the truth about the extrajudicial punishment at the core of the case. Nicholson's character, command, character commander responds, You can't handle the truth. 
When it comes to convincing myself of my power, prestige, and finely honed ability to manage and control the world around me, I am remarkably capable of convincing myself that I can handle just about anything. I believe I can handle the truth because the truth mirrors my perceptions. In a postmodern culture where truth is regarded as mere opinion, my individual truth has equal importance to everyone else's renditions of their own personal truth. Thus, truth is reduced to a small matter easily dispensed with. I live in a world of evidence, including the evidence of Aristotle's chain of causation I see on a daily basis. One thing is caused by something else, which is caused by something else in turn. So I come to believe that all my exertions, large and small, can somehow control the future. I'm firm in my conviction that I can concoct what I desire, a little push here, a little push there. I know I can handle what I face. All it takes is a little more effort, and the great realm foretold in the New Testament, or at least in the offices of Madison Avenue, will break through. Of course, the breakthroughs are rarely, if ever, attainable, and if they do happen, they're not the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed in the Gospels. It's because the kingdom I see is the lowercase realm ruled over by the almighty uppercase me. I wind up believing in myself as my own defense attorney, judge, and jury. I will render a verdict in my favor when faced with any trial. After all, at the very least, I have good intentions. And those good intentions are big-time trouble. The same could be said about Yuza, who had the good intention that he was helping God's intended future to arrive, a good intention that destroyed him. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in the house of Yuza's father, Abinadab, after its retrieval from the Philistines. Everyone knew that the gilded crate that contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and Aaron's staff was a powerful thing. They remembered how the Jordan dried up as soon as the priest transferring it across the river into Canaan put a toe in the water. The Israelite armies had carried it with them as they went into battle, because God had promised to be where the ark was. Whenever the Israelites stopped in their wanderings and conquest of Canaan, you could find the ark in the Holy of Holies at the back of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. In the tabernacle and in the later renditions of the temple, the Ark's presence made the Holy of Holies into an ancient version of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor core, too dangerous to approach. Only the priest could move behind the curtain for a brief moment on the Day of Atonement. Now, at long last, King David had issued the order for the Ark to be transferred by cart to Jerusalem. To keep from coming into contact with such a holy thing, the Israelites loaded it onto the cart using poles and kept it covered with a veil while out in the open. Abinadab's son, Yuza, accompanied the ark. He discovered what all precautions were for the ark slipped uh, when in a rut and the ark began to slide off the ancient flatbed. Unfortunately for Yuza, the coronavirus has nothing on the Ark of the Covenant when it comes to the need for social distancing. Despite all the warnings about holiness and danger, Yuza did what any of us would have done. He literally took matters into his own hands to prevent God's holy ark from crashing to the Judean rocks. Yuza touched the ark. He lay his fingers on the presence of God and was struck down on the spot. If he had had any brain cells working at the point, he might have given us the moral of the story. You can't handle God. There are a couple of ways to think about that. First, God didn't need Yuza's help. This is the divine being who came up with the idea of gravity long before Isaac Newton ever considered it. If God finds his ark so precious, God had plenty of ways to circumvent what happened to Yuza. A temporary halt to gravity would do nicely. So would simply letting the ark fall and having the moving crew use those poles to get it back up on the ark again. 
However, what doesn't work is thinking you need to save God from any peril to his own name, being, or power. In other words, Yuza could have used a lesson from Jesus, who taught us to pray against our own kingdom and will in the Lord's Prayer. He might have followed the AA bumper sticker, let go and let God. Along with this comes the understanding that God's utter holiness means that God will not be manipulated by sinful flesh. We don't get to make just any demand on God or, worse, treat God like our own private lickspittles required to do our own bidding. That would require a repeat of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and would result in exactly the world the serpent tempted our first parents to believe would arrive by eating from the tree. Not handling God means not forming the Lord into whatever image we want to make of him. Finally, not being able to handle God means that God has a problem on his own own non-anthropomorcentric hands. How to make himself known, how to shift us from fear to love of God without completely doing a use on us in the process. It's a big enough thing for me to think about maintaining six feet from others in the face of this pandemic. I can hardly imagine having God sidle up to me to whisper graces in my ear, only to have his proximity turn me to ashes and cinders. What we have going on for us is what Yuza could have could have used. God's arrival in our midst in a tangible way that not only doesn't destroy life, but gives it instead. We have Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Jesus birthed into a stable. Jesus with hammer-pounded thumbs in his dad's carpentry shop. Jesus with dirt under his toenails from walking to Capernaum. Jesus hangry and needing to pluck grains of wheat on the Sabbath. Jesus bloodied and hanging on the cross. Jesus dead and buried. Here is God coming to you in a way that he fully desires to be handled. He wants to be grasped. He aims to have his body and blood placed in your hands and sliding down your gullet. And in giving himself to you, he allows you to make demands on him. He's promised to give you life and give it abundantly. When it's not happening because of a pandemic, injustice, or insolvency, you get to remind God that a promise was made and say, Snap to it, Lord. Let's get her done. I'm awaiting. That kind of handling is called for and regarded as ultra-faith. One last thing while we're talking Yuza and the Ark. The Holy of Holies, where the Ark had been in the temple, remained holy, holy, even after the Ark was lost. At Jesus' last breath on the cross, the 30-foot curtain enclosing the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. No longer is God's presence isolated in an Ark, a curtained room, or the realm of ideas, hypotheticals, and speculation. Now God has a new dwelling, for the Holy Spirit has entered the world, and on Pentecost entered us. It's as if God has chosen to make all of us use us into new individual arcs to bear his will into the world. Now, God places us on rutted roads for people to see and to give witness to what God has done. And God is sending people to us to grab us, to manipulate us, to handle us, because God wants to be known. Christ must be given in the flesh, our flesh. On account of Christ, God no longer has a use for arcs that others shrink from. If Jesus says, come to me, you wearied and disconsolate, then our calling is to get down in the ruts of this path of life and even into the grave and risk the touch of the sinful and the unclean. So we see the power of God at work. And then not long after, chapter 6, right, the, the ark is brought in the right way. God is dwelling with his people. Chapter 7 is about God's covenant with David. We won't talk about that today, but it's a very important covenant in Scripture. And you can see it referenced in some of the Psalms, like Psalm 89, Psalm 132, and such. Then we read in Psalm 8 about David's victories, some of his officials. Before we then get to 
2 Samuel chapter 9, where we have an interesting story where David wants to show kindness to those who were of the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. Remember, David loved Jonathan, and so he wants to show kindness to the house of Saul so that he can um, fulfill his vow and show the, the love that Jonathan showed him in return. And here we have Mephibosheth, and uh, here's an interesting uh, man who is lame, he's weak, he's, um, from one perspective, from the world's perspective, he's good for nothing, and yet David has grace on him. And so this is from 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is called Carried to the Table, it's by Kyle Jones. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, Mephibosheth, do not fear, For I will show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth was the victim of circumstance and timing. He was the grandson of Saul, the man who tried to kill David. When Saul and Jonathan died in battle against the Philistines, power shifted to David. Mephibosheth was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. Mephibosheth didn't collude with salt in David's life, yet Mephibosheth carried the consequences of his father's a- grandfather's actions. What power Mephibosheth could have possessed, he lost while he was still a powerless child. His identity was a threat to his life. He couldn't outrun it or hide from it. Worse still, he was called to stand before his greatest enemy, King David, the one who held power and control over his life. Mephibosheth fell on his face before the king. He lay before his greatest enemy, lame from injuries of the past. He couldn't run or hide. He couldn't stand or fight. He could only fall before the king in fear. Instead of destroying him, David restored him. He commanded Mephibosheth to eat at the table of the king who was once his enemy, like a member of the royal family. All this was not because he did anything to deserve it, but because of who his father was. We are all Mephibosheth, made lame by the sin inherited by the fall of Adam and Eve, The law calls us before the king of kings. We cannot run or hide. We cannot stand or fight. We know our guilt and failure. Yet to our amazement, Jesus, the king of kings and Lord of hosts, says, do not be afraid. In Christ, the new and better David, we are redeemed from our lame condition of sin. More than that, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection carry us to our place at God's table forever. We are not tolerated enemies for personal gain. We are more than friends. We eat at God's table as his children. We are brothers and sisters of Christ, family members and fellow heirs of the promised eternal life. So so in David and through his kindness to Mephibosheth, we see the kindness of God in Christ towards us. Well, it's not long we have chapter 10 here, right, David? More victories, more victories until chapter 11 happens, right? Um, David falls into sin with Bathsheba. He'll has Uriah killed and then is rebuked by Nathan. And we start seeing in the following chapters, the resulting consequences of this great sin that David commits. Here's some articles, a couple, I think at least of, uh, that I've got from Chad bird and they're kind of, uh, meditating, uh, you know, kind of like Psalm 51 ish and such, but about this whole incident and about what it did to David. And so I think these will be helpful because this is such a pivotal moment in David's life and it becomes a place and the context in which Psalm 51 is written, which is probably the most grace-packed psalm in the entire uh, Psalter. 
So the first article here is called Stumbling Over David's Confession, How to Understand Against You, You Only Have I Sinned by Chad Bird. The national media would have been blood drunk. Sex always makes for a catchy headline, especially when politicians are involved. But this was a bonanza of epic proportions. A national leader gets caught. Rumor is his paramour is a military wife, but the story gets even juicier. Turns out she's pregnant and her husband, who couldn't possibly be the father, was all too conveniently killed on the battlefield recently. And as icing on this scandalous cake, the nation's leader makes the war widow his wife. When the scandal of David and Bathsheba leaked out, reporters would have descended upon the Jerusalem palace like a locust on a ripened field. This story of lust and adultery, intrigue and murder, callousness and cover-up, captivates readers to this day. Perhaps that's because it's one of those ripped-from-the-headlines biblical stories. Perhaps it's because the characters in the narrative make better people feel even better about themselves. And perhaps it's because some of us see ourselves and our own lurid personal narratives reflected in this biblical story. For those of us in this latter category, a poetic outgrowth of David's sin and subsequent repentance is especially meaningful. I refer to Psalm 51, which, according to its heading, David penned after his affair with Bathsheba. I have prayed this psalm more times than any other. Its confessions and laments and declarations of faith express perfectly the bitterness and sweetness of the life of repentance, of dying and rising. Yet within this psalm, one expression had always tripped me up. Indeed, when I prayed it, I seemed to utter a half-truth at best. It comes near the beginning where David says, Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Against you, you only I have sinned. How could you say that, David? You sinned against God, to be sure, but also against Bathsheba, Uriah, your family, your military, indeed your entire nation. How can you possibly limit the scope of your sin and need for confession to God alone? Perhaps the answer to that question is found in a parallel situation. This one related to the holiness of God. In her liturgy, the church sings, You alone are the Holy One, echoing Revelation 15.4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. God alone is intrinsically, eternally, essentially holy, yet God is not stingy with his holiness. He grants it to people, places, things, and times. They share in what is his, the Lord, the Lord alone is holy, and all else that is holy is holy because it is of him. To desecrate that holiness is to do harm to the one with whom the Lord has shared his holiness. But the desecration is truly and ultimately directed at God alone, since he is the sole source of sanctity. Similarly, when I seduced Bathsheba, when I stole from and murdered Uriah, when I brought dishonor to my family, when I failed in my office, when I was David, I sinned against all these people. Their forgiveness I implore. At the same time, against God, God only I have sinned and done what is evil in his sight. For it is his law I have broken, his office in which I have failed, his people against whom I have sinned. All is from him, so all I have taken, I have taken from him. All others against whom I have sinned, I have sinned because they are of him. Within this confession, there is also a hidden beauty, a secluded comfort that is perhaps only truly appreciated when it is a lived reality. There were, I suspect, people in Israel during David's lifetime who never forgave him for his scandalous conduct, his lies, his lust, his bloodshed. He had sinned against them, to be sure. But even in his life of repentance, even as he sought their absolution, they withheld it, whatever their reasons might have been. Did their refusal to forgive mean that David was unforgiven? 
Did David's absolution depend on people's willingness to forgive? Absolutely not. For against you, you only have I sinned. Justice confession is directed fully and ultimately to God alone. So absolution is received fully and ultimately from God alone in Jesus Christ. There is the hidden beauty in this seemingly limiting confession of David. For David's sin, another David would pay the price in blood. In him and in him alone would absolution for the world be earned and given. For that reason, this verse from Psalm 51 that used to trip me up now is my greatest delight. For as much as it may hurt that others refuse to forgive, Christ does not. Against him, him only have I sinned. And from him, him only, I receive absolution, full and free. So there's one aspect of David's sin, right? Whenever he sinned and did this, he certainly sinned against other people. But ultimately, all of those sins against all those people even lead back to the one true sin against God. Second article by Chad Bird about this incident here is called Ill-Conceived, Pinpointing When Our Lives Went Wrong. And again, like as the last one, this one, I've kind of edited these just a, just a touch. So just want to let you know that. But anyway, they're really good. The little psychologist within us is often hard at work to pinpoint the origin of our life's problems. During marital strife, we sift through everything from sexual proclivities to spending habits to discover the source of our discontent. When raising a rebellious child, we replay every episode in his upbringing to determine where things may have gone awry. We want to know when Pandora's box was cracked open, introducing mayhem into our lives. I've not only probed into my own past in this quest for a cause, I've pondered the past of one with whom I feel a deep and abiding kinship, the biblical David. When I was just a boy, the slingshot-wielding, Goliath-slaying boy David was my hero. In my 20s, when I became a poet and hymn writer, I kept up a discipline of praying the whole book of Psalms monthly, then progressed the week to weekly in order to learn by heart every psalm that David had written. Later still, when I succumbed to the temptations of the flesh and inflicted emotional carnage upon my wife and family, I immersed myself into the narrative of David's downfall, when he not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but arranged the murder of her husband, Uriah. As I have asked myself a million times over, Where did things go wrong? So I have asked David the same. How is it that the shepherd boy, who once slew the Philistine giant with a single rock, matured into a man who couldn't win a battle against himself? What was the cause of this rebellion against God? Pride? Apathy? Lust? Greed? Perhaps, I thought, if I can discover the starting point of David's road to ruin, I could better understand my own sordid history. If there is an answer to this question, there is no more likely place it will be found than in Psalm 51, David's famous post-adultery confession. In line after line, the penitent poet laments his wrongdoing. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He describes himself and his heart as unclean. He needs God to wash him, to blot out his sins. The Lord has broken his bones, and he fears the loss of the Holy Spirit. But does David give us an answer to our question of why he sinned so grievously? Was it his becoming king that engendered arrogance and an I-can-have-anything-or-anyone-I-want attitude? Was it the fact that he neglected his vocation of leader of the army and stayed behind in Jerusalem? Was it his lust-filled heart that enticed him to bed Bathsheba? Perhaps all of these had a part to play in the tragedy of David, but in Psalm 51, when he notes the cause of his downfall, he highlights none of these. 
In fact, he takes us back to much earlier in his life, before his kingship, before his service to Saul, even before he killed Goliath. This penitent goes to the deepest, earliest sources of his sins of adultery, lying, killing, and cover-up. It's in verse 5 of the psalm where the king prays, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not when he was an adult king, not when he was a boy shepherd, but when he was a baby conceived. Things went wrong with David, and with me, and with all of us. We do not begin our existence as humans with a clean slate. We are conceived and born as fully flawed people, heirs of the corruption that was once voided so starkly by Moses, voiced so starkly by Moses, when he wrote of man, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, only evil continually. That sad triad of words would serve well as the title of the biography of humanity. What is instructive to me, however, is that of all the places in the scriptures where the Holy Spirit could have voiced this truth about man's conception and sin, he chose to do so in this psalm of King David. What is it about David's life in this psalm that makes it this so fitting a place to utter this dire pronouncement of humanity's corruption? Perhaps it is because what David did gives perfect expression to the imperfection that has poisoned our very nature. He lacked for nothing, yet wanted more. As Nathan the prophet would chide him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it was I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel in Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Notice the God verbs. I anointed I delivered, I gave, I would have added. It's like the Garden of Eden all over again. On this Adam-like David, God piled gift upon gift upon gift, yet still that forbidden female fruit David plucked. Curved in on himself, David craved what the Lord had not given to satisfy his own lust and greed and selfishness. I have done that too, and you, dear reader, have as well. Why? The sin in which our mother conceived us conceives in us all manner of evil. What is rather startling, however, is that hidden within this verse about our iniquitous birth, our sinful conception, is the story of another David whose birth, indeed whose conception, changes everything. If not a single cell of sanctity is ours and ours alone, if not a vestige of original purity is tucked away in the folds of our being, then the only way in which we have hope must be found in someone outside ourselves. If our conception is sinful, we need one whose conception was pure for us. If our birth is in iniquity, we need one whose birth was holy for us. If our lives constantly manifest selfishness and greed and lust, then we need one whose life was replete with righteousness, who resisted every temptation, who kept every divine law flawlessly for us. That is why the Son of God did not appear on earth as a full-grown man to do his work of saving us. He came into this world via the womb, as we all do, he passed through every stage of life that we pass through, but he did so perfectly that in his perfection, we might receive our own perfection in the eyes of the Father. For Christ was not conceived for himself, but for us. He was not born for himself, but for us. He did not keep God's commandments for himself, but for us. He did not die and rise again for himself, but yes, for us. He fully meant what he said when he told his disciples, I did not come to be served, but to serve. The service of Jesus for us began in utero, for in utero our service to self began. 
Psalm 51 is ultimately much more than the prayer of David's repentance as well as ours. It is the proclamation of the gospel of a new and better David whose conception conceives within us new hope of a new life of forgiveness and reconciliation to the Father. This David, this Jesus, blots out our transgressions, washes us thoroughly from iniquities, and cleanses us from our sins. For from conception to cross, from full womb to empty tomb, he is the sole source and cause of our salvation. Well, that's where we'll leave it today. Um, I think that is a place to stop and a good place to stop because as we think about all that we read this week, keep your eyes on Jesus and also on um, Psalm 50. Read Psalm 51 with uh, these passages of Scripture or at least remember it, think about it. Um, because it, it, it's God is trying to teach us something powerful about our own sin, but also about the heights and depths and length and width of his grace. Thank you for listening to this. Take care. God bless.